from the moment Jesus stepped into Jerusalem to his arduous journey to be crucified and into his glorious resurrection. Come and listen in as Dr. Andy Brown shares the truly awesome significance of the holiest of weeks. This is Hearing is Believing. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we are so grateful through the message that we just heard that the blood of Jesus is our salvation. That wonderful, perfect sacrifice is the reason why we even exist, Lord. Because of the blood of Jesus, because of Him esteeming Himself not above us, but esteeming us above Himself, it's that reason that we have any kind of hope. And Father, this is why we've gathered here tonight on a Wednesday to celebrate this Holy Week, this Passion Week, to remember the most significant week in history. And we love you. And we trust you now, Father, as the Word is proclaimed, that you would bless your Word, that you would let an increase come from your Word, that by your Holy Spirit you would grant unto us the illumination that we need. We come humbly asking you to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you mind taking your Bibles, please, and turning to the book of Mark? And we'll be tonight looking at Mark chapter 14, a very significant happening in the life of our Lord as this Holy Week continues to transpire, as we continue to go through the events of Holy Week. We're going to begin tonight to see the plot to kill Jesus really beginning to show itself. The greatest life ever lived was the life of Jesus Christ. For 33 years he lived on the earth, but realistically, if you think about it, we only get a picture through the portrait of the Gospels of a ministry that lasted only three years. So out of those 33 years, we just get a small snippet of those three years. But I want you to think with me tonight and put this thought before you. In those three years, this one man accomplished more than all lifetimes of all the men on earth combined. His present life, think about right now, we know that right now he is seated with the Father at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. His present life, realistically, we don't know much about. We know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We know that He is right now making intercessions for us. We know that He is drawing all men to Himself. We know that He is ruling the world by the word of His power. We know that He is soon coming to establish justice, to establish His kingdom, to judge the wicked, to establish righteousness on on all the earth. And we know that there's going to be one day that we who have placed faith in Him, we will reign with Him forever. But really the most significant amount of his life is what we get a picture of through the lens of the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four, they write down, they were either eyewitnesses of the events or they wrote down testimony of those who were eyewitnesses of the events. So tonight in our text in Mark chapter 14, we get the opportunity And it's a grand opportunity that we have tonight. We get the opportunity to understand our Lord's mission further, to understand His purpose. 
his life, and remember this, his life and all the events of his life were an expression of his mission. And his mission was to save sinners. He came to this earth, John 3.16, why did he come? So that those who believe could have eternal life. His entire life and all the events were an expression of the gospel. The good news of God coming to save sin-wrecked, wretched sinners like us to set us free from the chains that were around our legs, the chains that were around our necks that were keeping us, holding us back from entering the presence of God. That's why He came. And so tonight, as we go through the first 11 verses, we're going to see a plot to extinguish the author of life. But as we're going to see in the midst of this plot to extinguish the author of life, there's an interruption. And it's a glorious interruption. Placed precariously in between the plot to is a beautiful display of love and devotion for God. Would you mind joining reading with me beginning in Mark chapter 14 and verse 1. The Bible says, It was now two days before the Passover of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard of it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I want us to learn tonight three truths about the gospel of God coming to save. And beautifully tonight, we're going to learn it through the lens of this alabaster flask. The first thing that I want us to learn tonight that the Bible is demanding that we learn tonight is that the gospel comes to the least of these. Look at the way the text is. As we open the Bible together, as we read it, we see something that pops out right automatically at us. Mark is marking the timeline now. He's giving us the exact place of where this is happening, how this is all occurring. And so he gives us the timeline. It was now two days before the Passover So as we open the timeline, we see the Passover. And the Passover, remember, was that wonderful 
event in the history of Israel where they celebrated salvation. When God delivered them from the Egyptians in the Exodus, when He sent His final judgment upon those who held His people captive. And they did that. God accomplished salvation for them in that Passover night through this spotless lamb, according to Exodus chapter 12. They were to take a lamb that was without blemish. And then they were to take that lamb and they were to do this brutal thing. They were to kill that lamb, slit that lamb's throat, and then take a hyssop branch and have the blood of that lamb sprinkled on the two doorposts and on the lentils so that the people inside the house who were covered by the blood were spared from death, were spared from judgment as death and judgment swept through the land of Egypt. But in Egypt, it's interesting, if we remember Moses' mission according to God, Moses' mission was, let my people go, thus saith the Lord. So we remember that the Hebrew people, they were slaves. In Egypt, the Hebrews were slaves. They were the ones on whose backs Ramesses, the Pharaoh, built his city. They were the least of all the people in their land, but yet they were the ones who were saved from the judgment. And the same is true in this text. And I think that Mark is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this purposefully, of course, of course, and very poignantly to teach us, to tell us. So he mentions this. He lets us know the timeline purposefully so that our minds will go back and remember the events of the Passover so that we can begin to see clearly what it is that God is enacting, how He will bring about this salvation. And so in our text tonight, we are surprised and we are shocked at the contrast that we see. So let me introduce you to the characters. First, you have the chief priest and the scribes. They're there in verse 1, just seated there for us. And then we have all of a sudden this introduction of one by the name of Simon the leper. And then this other lady who is not even named. She's anonymous. And then we carry down, and then we have one named Judas Iscariot. And the contrast that Mark is building between these characters is they're butting heads all along the text. This is what the commentators call, this is a, uh, they call it a Markan sandwich, where Mark has sandwiched this story of Jesus being anointed at Bethany in between this plot to kill Jesus so that the contrast can be exasperated, so that the contrast can be highlighted for us so that we can see it and not miss it. And so look at the players, the supposed leaders of society, these chief priests and the scribes. They, in the text, are the antagonistic aggressors. And then we have Judas, one of the friends of Jesus. He is even seen in our story as having what we would think would be an elevated position because of who he was. How many people out of all the followers that Jesus had, and he had a number of followers, there were 12 men that he chose, and one of them was Judas. Surely he was one of the ones who was in an elevated position because he got to see all of these miracles of God. He got to see all that Jesus did while he was on the earth. And then look at the way that it's written in chapter 14 and verse 10. Judas Iscariot, and then the comma, who was one of the 12. He should have been a hero, but instead is an antagonistic aggressor. 
And then those players are all looped into one, the supposed leaders of society, this one who should have known better. And then all of a sudden, we have the heroes of the narrative. And the heroes in this story are those who are very unlikely. They are the least of all the characters, but they are the ones that are commended. Look at who they are, just for a moment. We have this one guy in verse 3, Simon the leper. What a great way to be known in society. Oh yeah, that's Simon. He's the one that has the skin disease. Lepers were those guys who were the outcast of society. Well, what probably had happened, we don't really know, but Simon was probably once a leper who had been cleansed by Jesus. And it's in his house that Jesus is resting. It's in his house that Jesus is relaxing. And then out of nowhere, it's almost as if the door burst open in the text while Jesus is reclining at table. All of a sudden, this woman comes and interrupts him. And this woman is not even named in the text. But what she does, Jesus says, will be remembered as long as the gospel is preached. Now it's interesting, when we go back into the world of the first century, and we have to remember the context, women in this day, they were not the elite in society. They were not the ones who were in the top of society. As a matter of fact, in this day, the testimony of a woman was not even trusted. They couldn't testify in court by themselves. They had to have a man that was there with them or a few women. But over and over, and I love the way the gospel just plays out, over and over again, God uses women to testify of His wondrous glory. Think about it. Who was there first to find the tomb empty that reported it back to the disciples? So we have two nobodies versus the religious leaders. The two nobodies are serving the king of the ages while the religious leaders are seeking their own ambitions, seeking to please themselves, rather seeking to please God. And in this we learn, we learn the economics of the kingdom. And here's what I mean. Over and over the Bible is clear. In order to come before God, you must first humble yourself. To realize that you have no standing, you have no right with God. You have to come to Him humble, realizing that you are the least of these. The Bible is clear time and time again. Self-righteousness and the attempts of self-righteousness will never achieve the righteousness of God. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The testimony of the gospel, the testimony of the good news is that we must first realize, we must first have this deep in our heart and come to this great realization that we are worthless and we have been wrecked with sin. And then, Peter says again, the next verse in 1 Peter 5, after he says God opposes the proud, he says this in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore... Why? Because he's already told us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So then Peter says it just makes sense. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And then look at the result. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. Oh, this world says what goes up must come down. God says what goes down must come up. 
the economics of the kingdom, the least of these. And God, He repeats this time and time and time again. Remember the great testimony of God from Isaiah chapter 66. In the second verse, God says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and the one who trembles at my word. Now what does it mean to have God look at you? It means for you to have God's favor upon your life. All of us want God to look at us with a look of love. We all want God to look at us with a look of blessing. And God says the way that you get exalted in my eyes, whose eyes roam to and fro seeking righteousness, the way that you, you get the commendation from me is to humble yourself. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit, who understands my word, and that word produces something in him. That word produces a trembling in him. And so the stage is already set for us in this narrative, just as in this narrative, the ones who are the least, the least, they end up being the greatest. And so it is in our time. The one who are the greatest in God's eyes, listen carefully, the ones who are the greatest in God's eyes are those who realize that they are the least. They are the ones who can honestly sing the greatest hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know that word wretch there in some of the old hymn books? It used to translate a different way. It used to be translated worm. We really don't like to think about ourselves like that, do we? It sort of rubs us the wrong way. <laughs> Man, especially in this day and age where the, the number one thing is the selfie. And Time Magazine recently just said that one of the greatest inventions of 2014 was the selfie stick. Have you all seen these things? They hold, it's, it's crazy. It totally rubs against everything that our society holds dear. But the message of the gospel is if you're ever going to be exalted, you have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God first. You have to realize that you, your life has been wrecked by sin. You have no standing with God whatsoever. None of your righteousness is any good. He says that your righteousness, God says, your righteousness to me is nothing but a filthy rag. And so we look further at this narrative as it unfolds and we quickly begin to see and if for those of us especially who love our King, who love Jesus, perhaps you've, you've thought and you've asked the question, well, couldn't it have been another way? Why did we have such a gruesome, gruesome testimony of, of a Savior dying on a cross and having His back lacerated and opened up and having His hands, having spikes driven through. Why does this have to be? And so we look at this and we see the plot to kill Jesus. And it's sort of like those times where if you've ever read the Old Testament a few times, you know, you get to those books of kings and you're like, man, okay, here's, here comes another king. Maybe finally they're going to get it right this time. Maybe finally something's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it says, well, this guy did wicked and they all, and you're like, well, it's just... Oh well. So maybe we're coming at this story and maybe you are looking at this and you're reading it and you're thinking that things, they really begin to unfold and it really begins as we look at this, we see things look like they are unraveling at the seams as the plot to extinguish the author of life is now gnarling its teeth. So now the lip is removed and we can see the sharpness of the teeth coming in. But we look at our text 
And the second truth that we can learn from this text is that the gospel, listen carefully, the gospel has been the plan of God since the very beginning. When God decided to create the world, listen closely to me, when God decided to create the world in the way that He created the world, He knew that the way that He created the world meant before He said, let there be, He knew that before He said, let there be, there was going to be a day when God Himself, the Son, would be hanging on a tree at one spot in the earth I was going to be crying up to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The love and the mercy of God is even right there. If there would have been a better way, don't you think God would have done it? The cross was the best way. The gospel, the good news of this God coming in to save those who have been wrecked by sin, those who who are the wretched ones, this gospel has always been the very plan from the very beginning. Go ahead and divorce it from your mind if you ever think that all of a sudden Adam and Eve sinned, and as God comes down walking in the cool of the day, He says, where are you? And He really doesn't know where they are, and it's just this old sham. And now He says, oh man, now that you took the fruit, do you know? What have you done? Now I have to send my son. No, God needs from the beginning exactly what was going to transpire this week 2,000 years ago and he did it anyway look at the text look at where the context is look in chapter 13 one of the most contentious passages in all of Mark chapter 13 what in the world's going on I tell you what's going on the reason that it's so contentious is because Jesus is teaching about the future how can he teach about the future well it's real simple he is who he is he can teach about the future because he knows all things and all things are in his plan this present plot of everything that's happening these chief priests and scribes coming together and even Judas coming together this is all a part of the purpose of the plan of God And in verses 1 and 2, we see the plot. And then this plot is interrupted by a display of devotion. And then the plot picks up again in verses 10 and 11 with with Judas. Fulfilling the desires of the ones who were plotting the plan in the first place. And you and I, as we read this, it's so startling. If we can think about reading it for the first time, Judas was one of the twelve. Jesus is this guy that everyone loves. You know, even Mahatma Gandhi, I think it was, he said that I love Christ. I just hate the Christians. So we have all these understandings of Christ. There's always been this figure that everyone likes to love. And so we look at this and we say, Judas, why? Judas, why would he, one of the twelve, seek to destroy Jesus? This is the man whom Jesus chose, the man who walked with Jesus, the one who saw all of these magnificent works on display. Why would he do it? The gospel narratives never definitively give us an answer except for one. So we can speculate on the other ways or we can just go right to the answer, but let's speculate for just a moment. 
popular movies have said, well, maybe it was some political motivation. There's this idea that maybe Judas was a zealot. And all those are just purely speculative. Maybe things were not going fast enough for Judas, who was a zealot and wanted a hostile takedown of Rome. Maybe, maybe that was what was going on. Or, or maybe, maybe he was manipulated by greed. Because John, as John is telling this story, John, as he's showing us a portrait of the story, notice in Mark, the one who says, we should have sold this alabaster jar and given it to the poor, That's, that one is not named, but in John, John just is the one who wrote the last gospel, he wrote the one last, his account, he comes in and he says, yeah, I'll tell you exactly who it was, it was Judas. John adds this commentary, this is what John says. John says, after Judas said, we could have sold this and given it to the poor, John adds this as a sort of a parenthetical statement. He said, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Perhaps this was the last straw for Judas, who had been waiting, who had all these manipulative intentions. Maybe this was the last straw for Judas. We don't know. And like I said, Mark doesn't even name Judas. And the reason he doesn't do it is purposefully to prove his point. And the point is, is that even these events, as seemingly catastrophic as they are, these events are not out of the control. These events instead are the purpose and plan of God. Mark has been preparing us as we go along the narrative ever since the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And he's been peppering it all throughout, letting us know that Jesus is going to suffer. Letting us know that Jesus is going to die. Letting us know that this one is going to give his life as a ransom for many. But all at the heart is this understanding that God controls all things. And each and every event, even this event, this plot to kill Jesus, is right in line with His sovereign, providential control. Just as Pharaoh's heart was hardened to do the will of God, just as Pharaoh's hard heart served the purpose of God, so too Judas Iscariot, through the callousness, he will still serve God's purpose. The purpose of Jesus coming to give his life as a ransom for many. And all of this even before we get to the meat of the sandwich. <laughs> All of this, even before we get to the anonymous woman whose act, Jesus says, will be remembered forever. And there's something that Mark wants to teach us from this woman. There's something that Mark wants to teach us from this act, what this woman does, and it's this, I believe. The gospel is the way that you and I fulfill the greatest commandment. This woman comes on the scene. She burst in as, almost as if here Jesus is reclining at the table. And this woman comes in. She anoints the head of Jesus and she totally gives herself to Him. 
Everything that she is, all that she has, she gives it to the head of Jesus. Look at the way the Bible, it says it. It says, it's getting specific. It wants us to know these details. This woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Mark tells us, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over the head. How costly was it? Well, the disciples knew how costly it was. And they said it could be sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. What is that sum? It's a year's wages. A year's worth of wages that this lady pours upon the head of Jesus. The cost of the ointment shows that she's giving herself totally to Jesus. The alabaster, the fact that this jar is made out of alabaster, this this fine material that would have been carved into this, this jar, this basin, it says that she breaks it. Probably a family heirloom that was passed down. You just didn't get alabaster. You had to purchase the alabaster and keep it and hold it. This alabaster was probably a family heirloom. And what does she do? What does she do? She breaks the flask and she pours it over his head. And what is it telling us there? That she wasn't planning on taking the flask home. She wasn't planning on taking some of the ointment and using it as she went to bed that night. No, she gave it all to Jesus. And so the disciples are watching this happen. They're like, what? Jesus, don't you understand? All this time we've been walking with you and you've cared so much about the poor. And you're going to let this lady come in and break this this awesome sum of money and pour it over you. Can't we do something better with that? But Jesus responds to their indignance through defending her. Why? He says it. He says that her actions further prepare him for a death that he will undergo. And don't you just think that the disciples, if they were just sitting there, they were like, Jesus, you know, you must have a martyr complex or something. I mean, Jesus, you keep talking about this death, but we're not seeing it yet. We just don't understand. But her actions not only prepare her for what's coming and pave the way for what's coming, though she may have not even known what's coming, her actions also are fulfilling the greatest commandment. And the way that I want you to see that is because look at the way chapter 14 and verse 7 is. Jesus says this in verse 6. It says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you'll not always have me. And you would think, that's why. how could Jesus say that? Jesus mentions the poor. It seems harsh, especially this time of the year. As Mark's already told us, this is two days before the Passover. And so this Passover was a time, it was a time when it was expected to show benevolence and kindness to the poor. As a matter of fact, Jesus and His entire ministry showed kindness to the poor. And the second greatest commandment even says it this way. And Mark's already dealt with this in chapter 12 and verse 31 where he says, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment. 
there's a commandment that precedes that one. The commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Who is this that would elevate himself above the second commandment? Who is this other than God himself who would elevate himself above the second commandment? You see, her actions, her actions, they display the gospel. Though, like I said, she probably didn't even understand all that was going on or even its full implications. But look, and we continue on. It says in verse 8, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And if verse 8 was all there was, then there would be no gospel. If verse 8 is all there was, then there would be no reason for us to be gathered singing praises to Jesus week after week, much less for you, dear people, to come here every night of the week if verse 8 was where it just ended. But verse 8 is not where it ends. Verse 9 comes. And Jesus opens it up in verse 9 by saying, Truly, and this is something you need to know, Whenever Jesus says truly before he speaks, everything that he already says is true. So if he opens his mouth with the word truly, we listen. We look intently and we seek to know what it is our Savior is telling us. The gospel is no gospel at all if there's no resurrection. And so Jesus says this, and truly I say to you in verse 9, wherever the gospel wherever the good news there is no good news if this is all there is if we simply just have a cross there is no good news if there's not a risen Lord from an empty tomb and Jesus he lets us know that there is an expectation look at this I love this there is an expectation after his resurrection of a time afterwards of proclamation. Look at what he says. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, and where will it be proclaimed, Jesus says. Remember in chapter 13, he already knows the future. God knew this night would be here that close to 2,000 years later, many thousands of miles away, a group of saints would be gathered together in Oxford, Georgia, proclaiming the hope of Jesus saved. He knew that this good news, this message would be proclaimed through the whole world. And that's the time. Look at this. You talk about what's the Bible have to do with today? Right here in verse 9, this is where we are. We're in that time of proclamation after the resurrection, awaiting the King to come, awaiting Him to come and take us away, awaiting Him to come and establish His kingdom on this earth, and we will reign for Him forever and ever and ever. Listen carefully to me tonight. The only way 
for you to fulfill the great commandment is for you to place your hope, you to place your trust in the God who was despised and rejected by men. The one, according to Psalm 41, the one for our sakes became poor so that through His death and through His resurrection we could know what it means not only to love God, but also to realize that God Almighty in heaven loves us. And so I just want to humbly ask you tonight, have you come to that conclusion? Have you come to the conclusion that you are the least of these? Have you come to the conclusion that God has a desire for you and the only way for you to fulfill His desire for you is for you to love Him through placing your faith in the crucified Savior who was raised from the dead whom now is seated at the right hand of the Father who's coming soon to judge the living and the dead. Do you know this Jesus? This one whom they plotted to kill, whom they did kill, but they could never destroy. I love him. I trust him. And I pray you do tonight. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we absolutely adore you. And we thank you, Lord God, for sending your Son to save us. And Lord, if there is anyone here tonight who does not know you, who is not in love with Jesus, I pray the Holy Spirit of God would draw them irresistibly to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.